please be seated, and I invite you to <clears throat> turn with me in your Bibles or a pew Bible uh, and a pew rack in front of you to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're back to our series, working through the book of Deuteronomy, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we've made it to chapter 15, looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, I wonder what you think, what comes to mind when you hear uh, the word Sabbath. Chances are most of us immediately think of the weekly Sabbath that God instituted at the beginning in creation, right? one day in seven, uh, where six days we have to do our labors, and a seventh day as a Sabbath to the Lord our God, a day for rest, a, a day to worship and fellowship with his people. But that is not all there is uh, to the Sabbath. In fact, the principle of the Sabbath was much more deeply embedded in the life of Israel. Uh, and so the Sabbath principle was not only applied to people, the weekly Sabbath, it was also applied to the land. Every seventh year, the, the land was released, the land was given rest. Uh, it was released from the burden of being tilled and allowed to lie fallow for a year. But the principle of the Sabbath was also applied every, at the end of every seven years to the people's debts, the release of debts among God's people within Israel. And that's what we're going to reflect upon today in Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 11. So hear now the word of the Lord. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you and he shall lend and you shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow and you shall rule over many nations but they shall not rule over you <coughs> If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, 
because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Well, there are countless uh, organizations today devoted to the relief of suffering, Uh, the relief of poverty, uh, fighting against all manner of uh, injustice. In fact, nonprofit organizations like Salvation Army, Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, uh, Samaritan's Purse, and many others beside have become so much a part of of our existence, of our lives, that uh, we're not surprised by them. We're not We're not taken aback by their very existence. We're not surprised whenever uh, we're asked to donate money to support the work of these nonprofits. In fact, I think it's even right to say that we expect these organizations to spring into action whenever there's a natural disaster or some other major cause of human suffering. These humanitarian efforts, these organized humanitarian efforts have become so familiar that it's easy to forget it hasn't always been this way. There was a time before hospitals and adoption agencies and uh, homeless shelters and so forth. Kyle Harper, a, a historian of ancient Rome, points out that classical civilization lacked the concept of human dignity which gave rise to these humanitarian institutions that we often take for granted today. None of these institutions, however, just sprang up out of thin air. They, They have a history and very often, very often their history can be traced directly back to the Bible and the Christian faith and even more particularly to a passage like Deuteronomy 15. Kyle Harper, that historian, he also points out that the Christian gospel broke what he calls new ground by effectively creating the poor as a visible uh, category of people within a society. Previously, in ancient cultures, they were entirely ignored and neglected and largely oppressed. And, and what changed that, what fundamentally changed that in ways that we, I think, often take for granted today is the gospel. What changed that was the ministry of Jesus. You remember when he stood up at the beginning of his public ministry, as Luke records it in chapter 4. You remember what he said. He, he quoted from the Old Testament, and he defined his message and his mission as proclaiming good news to the poor. He singled them out. He he not only included them, he, he singled them out as particular objects of God's concern and care. He came to bring good news to poor people. And after reading these words from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, you remember what he went on to say. He said, today, 
these words are fulfilled in your hearing. In, in other words, Jesus is saying that he personally incarnates. He, he, is, he is the reality of the good news that he came to preach to the poor. And he does this in a way that was utterly unique in the ancient world. Even, even though God's law <clears throat> had always required generous care and special concern for the poor among God's people, no one ever met these expectations to the full. No one ever brought them to the fullness of their meaning and significance until Jesus to the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to explore this passage which anticipates Christ's proclamation of good news to the poor. <clears throat> and we're going to look at it in, in two basic parts. First, the cancellation of debts in verses 1 through 6. And then second, care of the poor in verses 7 through 11. See here in this passage a movement from systematic to spontaneous generosity. A legal provision that was programmatic and a call to have people respond personally and spontaneously whenever they saw a need, whenever they saw a brother in need. So verses 1 and 6 established a legal program of debt release on a seven-year basis among God's people. Uh, the basic requirement of this sabbatical year of release, it's summarized for us in verses 1 and 3. Take a look at it again. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. <clears throat> and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. If you experienced it, I know that you'll agree with me that few experiences are more daunting, more crushing than the spiral of debt. There are some of us who've experienced this. There, there are few experiences more frightening <clears throat> more stress and anxiety inducing than the spiral of debt where you feel like you just can't catch up. It's like standing in a hole and trying to dig yourself out of it. Poor people become desperate. And <clears throat> they're sometimes forced in, our, in a contemporary monetary society to, to take out loan rates that no one else would ever accept. And as a result, Poor people often find themselves with no way out in this downward spiral, unable to repay their loans, forced to give up what little security they might have, and they're driven into ever-increasing depths of poverty. And the issue, we need to appreciate this, the issue is not merely material deprivation. It's also degrading. It's interesting, if you've ever done any study on poverty and you listen to the voices of poor people, they're actually not focused on the money, they're focused on the shame of poverty. 
And the Bible, the Bible is attuned to this reality that not only the problem of material deprivation, but also the social degradation that goes hand in hand with it. And so the solution to poverty is ultimately not just the the giving of material resources. I wonder if you saw, I wonder if you saw it in the call to worship in Psalm 113. We chose those verses for a reason of our call to worship. God raises the poor from the dust to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He not only provides for them, he dignifies them. The Bible also talks about debt as a kind of slavery. Proverbs 22 verse 7 says that the borrower is the slave of the lender. So material deprivation, social degradation, and a kind of slavery. This is the spiral of debt. And this is precisely what the sabbatical year of release was intended to prevent from spiraling out of control among God's people within Israel. Now, of course, the point of the law, let's be clear about this, the point of the law was not to encourage or to enable irresponsible practices of borrowing or lending. It wasn't an invitation to exploit generous loans. Psalm 37 says, the wicked borrows but does not pay back. The sabbatical year of release was meant to provide an exit ramp. It was meant to provide an escape route, a way out for people who otherwise had no hope. Notice, as I said at the start, how this law is closely associated with the principle of the Sabbath. That is really significant as we gather together this morning to find rest, just as God worked six days and then rested from all of his work on the seventh, the Sabbath principle was also applied to larger economic problems that compounded over greater periods of time, right? Not just one week, but years. For example, the same basic impulse stands behind the year of Jubilee. The same basic Sabbatarian impulse driving the legislation <clears throat> stands behind the year of Jubilee, which was like a super Sabbath, you could call it. That's what the year of Jubilee was. It was a super Sabbath, a year of release every 49 years, according to Leviticus 25. The message was rest, release for the people of God. God would not have his people in bondage ever again. And when we stand back, when we step back and we consider passages like Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15 in, in view of the gospel, I think we're meant to see how the sabbatical year of release is ultimately fulfilled in the cancellation of our debts through the forgiveness that Jesus secured for us on the cross when he canceled the record of debts that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. The Lord sets captives free by canceling all of our debts and forgiving us. And so as we work our way into this passage and we see this Sabbatarian impulse that's driving 
this commandment, we need to step back and remember that the Lord Jesus is our ultimate rest. He is the source of our true Sabbath rest. At the cross, Jesus paid an infinite debt that we could never, ever repay because our sin had spiraled out of control. We were in that pit. We were the poor and needy. We could not lift ourselves out of the ash heap. But the Lord himself has delivered us. He has brought us out. He has set us with princes by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. And we need to appreciate the fact, brothers and sisters, that the debt we owed was incalculable. Just think about the fact. Think about, think about one sin and what it deserves. And then think about the fact that Jesus paid the debt not only of one sin you've committed today, not only the sins that you've committed in the past week or the past month or the past year, but over the course of, his, of your entire life, he took all of those sins and placed them upon his back and they were nailed to the tree and canceled in full so that God in Christ sets captives free. He canceled the greatest debt and Deuteronomy 15 ultimately takes us there. So we need to ask the question, how do we apply this Sabbath principle of debt cancellation in our lives today, right? As, as former debtors who have been forgiven of an incalculable debt, which was canceled at the cross, I think it ought to make us really think practically and personally and congregationally about how we can keep debt from spiraling out of control in our lives. There's certainly more application than that, but there certainly isn't less. There is a danger, I think, when we come to a passage like this of moving too quickly to what we might call the spiritual significance of this passage. But we shouldn't do that. There is certainly more to this text than the material application, but that doesn't mean we should skip over it and ignore it. We should think about this in concrete, practical ways. How can we prevent ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ here at Trinity from ever experiencing the spiral of debt. After all, that was the point of this law to begin with, so we shouldn't overlook the importance of helping a brother in financial hardship. And I use that word brother intentionally. I wonder if you noticed how key it is in this passage. The word brother appears six times in the span of these 11 verses, brother, 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 brother. I want, do you get the point? God is teaching his people, this is how you are to see one another. This is how you are to view one another, and therefore this is how you are to treat one another as family. God's people are a family. And having this perspective is one of the most important ways that we can begin to obey this law. As we deal with the issues of debt and financial hardship, the church, we proceed on the basis that everyone here is family. 
And so we're to look after one another as family, to be, to be loved and cared for, because that's what family does. They, they help each other out. And we ought to, therefore, aspire to be a place where people who are struggling financially know that they do not need to pretend. They do not need to try to carry a burden all on their own. They do not need to try to hide it from others. Now, I know, as soon as I say this, I, I know that that's a challenge for some of us. We, we live, I think, in a, in a society that prides itself upon self-reliance, upon being self-sufficient, and this idea of saying, hey, I'm, I'm struggling, I, I might need help, really rubs us the wrong way. We might, we, we, we might even feel ashamed at the thought of it. But as we deal with issues of, of debt and financial hardship, I, I want to say something on both sides. If we ever find our, ourselves in the position of, of need, I want to say something to you. Do not deny your brothers and sisters the blessing of the grace of giving. Don't deny your brothers and sisters of that grace. And if you're on the other side where you're able to give, we're going to continue to think about this, open your hand. We are to look at each other as family and we ought to be able, in light of the gospel, to be honest about struggles because, and this is why we recited the Apostles' Creed a moment ago, we believe in the communion of the saints. Because we believe in the communion of the saints, we possess the same infinite treasure and enjoy the same deep sense of belonging that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just think about this. We, we confess we believe in the communion of the saints. And that means, first of all, that we all share the infinite treasure of fellowship with Christ. We all share the same pearl of great price. And secondly, it means that in light of that, we'll use our gifts, we'll use our resources to embody and to express that fellowship in giving and in receiving. So you see, you see the pattern that's established by the communion of the saints. First we receive this, and then we give that in light of having received this fellowship in Christ using our various gifts and resources to embody the reality that we are a communion of saints because we share the same infinite treasure. And when you have that, it opens your heart and it opens your hands. But that's not all that we can say in light of this passage. The cancellation of debts points us beyond financial assistance to the practice, the Christian practice of forgiveness. I'm sure you know this, but it's worth being reminded today that forgiveness itself is an economic metaphor. That's what the word is referring to. Forgiveness begins with the idea of debt cancellation. So we got to go there. And I, I want to take you to Matthew 18, uh, verse 21 and following where Peter asks Jesus, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? It's fascinating. I think it's so interesting that he asks 
as many as seven times. Right? But Jesus said to him, now check out this super Sabbath principle. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the unforgiving servant, saying, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot. Okay, it's a lot of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant, hear this language, released him and forgave him the debt. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, that's nothing in comparison to what he owed. And seizing him by by the neck, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. What did he do? He he refused and he went and he put his fellow servant in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They, They went and reported to their master everything that had happened. And so the master summoned the servant and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And here's the punchline. Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I think a faithful application of Deuteronomy 15 takes us here. God has settled accounts with us, brothers and sisters, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us in full. He released us, canceled our debts. And experiencing such forgiveness ought to make us a forgiving people. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The question I think we should ask ourselves, are you willing to forgive the way that you have been forgiven? And the warning of this parable is don't don't be an unforgiving servant or you will have to pay every last penny yourself. And so Deuteronomy's concern for the cancellation of debts, it should really lead us to think about how to help each other, how to help each other avoid debt. And it should remind us that our God is in the business of canceling debts, real debt. And that should mean we should be like him, a people 
ready to forgive, eager even, eager to forgive one another from the heart. That brings us to the second thing in this passage, the care of the poor. Uh, In in verse 4, Moses says, there will be no poor among you. And we need to understand that that is a contingent ideal that depends upon the obedience of the people. As Moses goes on to say, In verse 5, if only you strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today, simply put, obedience to God's good law alleviates poverty among God's people. That's that's the simple conclusion of this. Then this is the ideal. This This is the reality that God's people in all ages are called to pursue. And I think this is so thrilling to look at. This is what the church does pursue. It's what we see so clearly in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. Luke, the author of Acts, actually alludes directly to Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4. He uses the exact same words in the Greek Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 15 in Acts chapters 2 and 4, changing the tense from future to present when he says there were no poor among them. He's directly citing Deuteronomy 15. In other words, he's saying that as they shared their possessions, as they gave to one another, as they had need, the church alleviated poverty from their midst. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to any who had Need And in doing so, the church was being obedient to the voice of the Lord in Deuteronomy 15. And the poor were being lifted out of poverty. But Moses did not suffer from what we could call idealism, right? He was, he was realistic. And so when he goes on to explain what God's people ought to do when they are confronted with poverty in verse 7, he also acknowledges in verse 11, see this, there will never cease to be poor in the land. And I think that is also, this reality is also demonstrated in the book of Acts, right? Where we find the fellowship of believers being described in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, and there's no poor among them. Well, how long does it take? Two chapters. It takes two more chapters before you get to Acts chapter 6, and there's the outcry of the Hellenistic widows who are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And what happened then? We see the wisdom of the institution of, I think what you have there is the proto-diaconate. You have the establishment of the office of deacon in the New Testament church. Deacons appointed to establish a permanent office in the church to minister to those who are in need and to develop the grace of generosity, the grace of liberality within the church. And so we see this ideal And right alongside of it, we see the challenges of reality in this world. So how should God's people respond? We could could go down many different paths of application and consideration. And to keep it simple and straightforward today, God's people should respond with an open hand. God's people are called to be generous. Take a look again at verse 7. If among you, right, among the covenant community, among God's people, one of your brothers should become poor 
In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And this call to generosity is simple and straightforward, and I, am, I, I don't think it should die at the death of a thousand qualifications. Simply put, if your brother is hit with financial hardship, open wide your hands. That's what it says. And the greater revelation that we have received, the love of God in Christ Jesus revealed in the gospel, we need to appreciate this. It, it actually intensifies the command that we are given in Deuteronomy 15. It's always been interesting to me, uh, the connection between the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, and 1 John 3.16. I wonder if you've ever noticed that connection. I'm not trying to make too much of, you know, versification came later, but it's a helpful memory device because these two verses correlate really well. Right? If you understand John 3.16, you will live out 1 John 3.16 through 18. Or the Apostle John says, well, remember John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Okay, just hold on to that. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. That's an astounding thing. What is love? <laughs> Get ready for this. John is going to, John's going to tell you. It should get our attention. He's about to tell you what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us love in word, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable how, how John moves straight from the loftiest subject of divine love and he goes straight to your wallet? <laughs> Do you see the line that he draws? Do you see how he, he connects the dots? He goes from the loftiest thought of the love of God, and he goes straight to what we do with our worldly goods without missing a beat. John, John goes from love defined in terms of Jesus' death on the cross to, to laying down our lives after his example, right? Laying down our lives for our brothers, which then is immediately fleshed out with what we do with our cold, hard cash. What we do with our material stuff. What do you do with your money? What do you do with your material wealth? Do you have love in your heart? Or don't you? Your, your money, what you do with your material goods, says a lot about what you love. And sadly, the Israelites, they often failed in their calling to be open-handed. They were not systematically generous in the way that Deuteronomy 15 commanded. And they were not spontaneously generous whenever they saw needs. And so eventually, 
The warning against hard hearts and closed fists in verse 9 materialized. It became a widespread reality among God's people. And for that and for other reasons, God's people were exiled out of the promised land. But you see, thankfully, that's not where the story of God's people ends. Because, because God himself is generous. And because God himself in the gospel gives what he demands. He himself does what his law requires. He cancels debts and he sets captives free and he cares for the poor. I want you to see this as we wrap up. You know, early on, this is recorded in all four gospels. We read about Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who identified Jesus, you remember, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then as, as time passed on, John appears to have become a, a mixture of confusion and, and hope. And, and during Herod's reign, when, when he's now imprisoned, he hears reports about what Jesus is, is doing. And, and simply put, Jesus was not doing the things John expected Jesus to do. Where was the iron rod? Why was the axe not laid at the root? Where was the divine judgment? It didn't make sense to him as he sat there and languished away in prison. What was Jesus doing? What was he waiting for? You remember eventually John sends some of his disciples to, to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And think, I want you to think closely and carefully about Jesus' response. This is the answer that Jesus said, give this to John the Baptist, okay? He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I wonder if you, I wonder if you catch the strangeness of that response. In his response, Jesus was drawing from passages found throughout uh, the book of Isaiah. Okay, So he's linking his identity to these prophetic promises Isaiah spoke of a day when the dead would hear and the blind would see. It's Isaiah 29 and 32. A day when the dead would live. Isaiah 26 verse 19. The eyes of the blind would be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer. I love that image. Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6. But what I think is perhaps most striking is that the last thing Jesus mentions doesn't seem like a miracle at all. Why? In this long list of things that are, on the face of it, miraculous, why does he end it with something that on the face of it seems altogether unmiraculous? Right? Jesus topped off this list of miracles by saying, the poor have good news preached to them. I think that seems odd. Why? Why bring, it seems like an anti-climax, doesn't it? Bring this list of miracles to its conclusion by good news being preached to the poor. But friends, it's not an anti-climax. It's the capstone. It's the ultimate climax to what Jesus is really saying. Because his response depicts a world 
Where, you know, healing blindness, healing disease, healing the lame, raising the dead is just as miraculous as the proclamation of good news to the poor. And when you stop and think about what it required of Jesus, when you stop and think about what it cost our Lord Jesus to bring real good news to the poor, then we'll understand why this was so miraculous. Just the thought of the the Son of God, the Lord of glory, born into poverty, born into a poor family, ministering with no place to lay his head, and, and, then, and then ultimately the sinless Son of God would have all of the sins of all of his people laid upon him, and he would carry them to the cross to have them paid in full. This is a miracle beyond all telling. God has given his people real rest by the cancellation of their debts. And that ought to change us. It ought to transform us into a people who seek to release our brothers and sisters from other burdens like debt. But the reason I mentioned all of those nonprofits at the beginning, your friends, is I think, I think we live in a day where all of those countless nonprofits, as good as they are and as thankful we ought to be for their work, At the same time, we need to say, let's be sure the church does not give up its unique calling to embody this reality. It is part of the church's witness to the world. We have the resources in the gospel to embody this message. And we need to draw on those resources of faith and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship of believers. So let's take hold of what God has freely given to us in his son. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are in the business of canceling our debts and that you have definitively done that in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we, as we remember this good news, Pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in our hearts to conform us to your own character and that we would follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus himself and have a heart for the poor, have a heart for those who are in need and where we see need as we are able, open wide our hands. And we pray that you would be honored through and in all of these things. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.